Hey, good morning, Midtown. Uh, it is certainly a pleasure to be with you this morning as we enter into a time of worship. Uh, we can find ourselves in a world that has really folded in on itself, uh, that can seem as if it's spiraling out of control. Uh, and we ask questions like, is God even there? Is God, uh, is he asleep at the wheel? Uh, what do we do with the chaos of wondering, do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? Uh, do we stay home? Do we go out? Uh, can we open as a church and meet together, or do we need to keep staying home? Uh, all these questions bring up so many insecurities, uh, so much fear, and we wonder, where do we look? Uh, but God tells us uh, to actually raise our eyes and look at Him, uh, not to turn to Twitter, not to turn to the news, uh, but instead, uh, let us turn to Him. So let us call to worship this morning from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Let us praise the Lord together. Midtown, let's sing together, knowing that we have confidence to come before the Lord because what Christ has done for us. For the throne of God above a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, the tongue can bid me its deep part. Some can bid me then steep And Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the justice satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him. spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace one with himself I cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is hid with Christ on high with Christ my Savior my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have welcomed us as your children into your presence, into your family, that we are no longer orphans, that we are yours. And as your children, you have given us everything that we need. Lord, that all that you have is ours through Christ Jesus. So would you come and open our eyes and open our hearts to receive that, to remember that. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, good morning, Midtown. It is uh, not how uh, we want to be doing this. We long to be with you in person, and we hope and pray for that day. Uh, but while we are uh, apart, uh, this, is, this has become the means by which we get to enter the Word uh, together during this worship service. And so coming out of our time of worship, we're going to dive into the sermon portion of the morning uh, now. If you'll turn with your, in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well, but we are going to be starting in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the word of the Lord. So this summer, we are looking at the prayers of Paul. All throughout uh, the New Testament in his letters, many times throughout his letters, Paul will tell the, the reader, Paul will tell the listener to these letters, what he's praying for them, what he's thanking God for about them, or what he needs prayer for himself. And so we're looking at these prayers, uh, and there's a couple different layers to them. One is we're, we're trying to learn about prayer. We want to grow in our knowledge of prayer. We want to grow in our experience of prayer. We want to grow in our devotion uh, to prayer. And we're going to learn about praying uh, with Paul as he teaches us about praying. But we're also looking at What's the heart of these prayers that Paul is after? What is Paul praying about, and why does that matter for those people, and why should the things that he prays about matter for us as well? And so in the opening lines of this first chapter of 1 Corinthians is another prayer of Paul. Paul starts verse 4 that we read, and he says, I always thank my God for you because Paul is talking about a, a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul is talking about, I'm, I'm prayerfully thanking God for you and for these things. And actually, verse 4 through verse 8 is one run-on sentence. So for five verses, Paul starts this prayer in verse 4, and then he just continues this prayer into verse 8 through verse 8, where he's telling the church at Corinth, hey, I'm thankful, I'm glorifying God, I'm praying about how, how, how excited I am that these things are true about you. And what's interesting about the prayer in these five verses, Paul doesn't mention one thing that the Corinthians have done. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, he lists the achievements of God on behalf of the Corinthian church. There's these five passive verbs in this prayer, and, all, and for each passive verb, the subject is God himself. Paul is not listing the, the glory of the Corinthians' faith or the beauty of the Corinthians' love. What Paul thanks God for on behalf of the Corinthian church 
is what God has done for the church at Corinth. And he's telling them about it. He's saying, I'm praying these things for you, and, and, I'm, and I'm thanking God for all that he has done for you and in you. It's actually one of the things that Paul does very often with his prayers. One of the roles that prayer plays for Paul in his letters is it is a didactic function, meaning he uses his prayers to teach the reader something. He wants them to learn something. He wants to take the thing that he's praying for them and he wants to tell them about it because he wants them to know how true the thing that he's praying for them is true about them. So that's kind of the first thing we're going to look at today. What is Paul teaching them in this prayer that he prays for them? But then also we're going to close and we're going to look at this as the second thing. Why does he pray these things for them? And why does he tell them that he prays these things for, him, for them instead of just telling them what's true about them? Why does he need to let them know, hey, you need to know I'm praying these things for you? Why does he just tell them what's true? He does that in the rest of the letter. So why is he using this prayer, not just to teach them? Why do they need to know that Paul is praying these things for them? But first, let's look at what he teaches them in his prayer. The heart of Paul's prayer here, the thing that he wants to teach them, the thing in this prayer that he wants the church at Corinth to know more than anything, is that they... And I would, I would wager with you to risk uh, not just what's true for them, us, what's true for us that was true for them, is that at this very moment, church, we have everything we could possibly need. Church at Corinth, this is what Paul's saying to them, you have everything you need while you wait for Jesus. Church of Midtown, you have everything you need while you wait for Jesus to return. He says this in a couple different ways in this prayer in verse 6, he says that you've been enriched in every way. And then in verse 7, he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift. That Greek word for spiritual gift is just the Greek word charisma, which means gift of grace or a gift that is freely given. So Paul says, you've been enriched in every way and you don't lack anything. You've been given everything you need. Is Paul serious? Surely Paul is being hyperbolic. Like, doesn't, doesn't Paul know about the sorrow and the pain and the grief and the loss? Doesn't Paul know about the fear that I experienced? Doesn't Paul know about the broken relationships in my life? Doesn't Paul know that there are bills to pay? Doesn't Paul know that there are sins that I can't quit? Doesn't Paul know that I have unmet desires in my life? Doesn't Paul know that there are circumstances going on in my life that aren't going the way that I want them to go? Is Paul so disconnected from reality that he would say something as ludicrous as, you've been enriched in every way and you lack nothing that you need? How can Paul say those things to people who are suffering? How can Paul say those statements to people who are walking through hardships? Well, if you read the New Testament, you know that Paul knows full well about pain and suffering. Paul knows full well about loss and betrayal and grief, and groaning. And so what Paul's doing is he's not giving the Corinthian church, he's not giving us something like a form of escapism, just to, to enter the clouds and disconnect ourselves from reality and maybe reach some, some uh, level of spiritual nirvana where you separate yourself from the world and then you can believe that you have everything you need. Paul is actually taking the Corinthians, taking us to a much deeper level than what we tend to, to deal with. Paul is saying, 
amidst all of your grief and amidst all of your loss and amidst all of your suffering and amidst the broken relationships and the things not going the way that you want them to go in your life, amidst that, in that very place, you have everything you need. See, because Paul knows that what happens, that what every circumstance in my life is telling me, what every circumstance in your life is telling you is that what you currently have is not enough. You're lacking something. You are not enough. You don't have and you're not going to get what you need. See, we exist in our realities, if you imagine it with me, just on these little patches of grass. And we exist, our existence, our life, our relationships, our resources, our realities are in this little life on this little patch of grass. And we're constantly being told as we stare at our world, at our life, how we experience the world, as we stare at the present tense of our life, we stare at them and the narrative that is being written in that is we believe I don't have what I need right here. And then when I stare at your patch of grass, when I stare at how your life is going, I believe that you have what you need and that you're more satisfied than me and that you can get what you need, but I can't. I believe that your grass is better and bigger and more liberating than mine. In the famous words of the band America from the 70s, they sing, this is for all the lonely people thinking that life has passed them by. Don't give up until you drink from the silver cup. You'll never know until you try. Don't give up until you've gotten what you want. How you currently are, lonely people, is not enough. The way your life is currently going, you need to go out and get something to make your life more complete. There's something out there that you don't currently have, and it will give you the life that you want. And I would wager with you, in fact, the Bible would wager with you, that any time we act out, any time we chase our favorite vice, or any time we spend time in our fantasy worlds, even subconsciously, any time we imagine, any time we run to our favorite temptation, we are acting out because in that moment, we have first believed that the way we are and what we currently have is not what we need. So because of that, I have to go and get what I need because what I have is not what I need. And Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, Paul is saying here to us, you already have the silver cup. You don't need to go get something else. You already have everything you need for what you were facing today. Now please, do not disconnect that because Paul is not disconnecting that from the tears and the loss. Paul is actually taking us to a deeper place. He's actually saying, even in the loss, real loss, even in the sorrow, you don't lack anything. Because of what you really want your circumstances to tell you, because of what you really want your patch of grass to tell you, because of what you truly desire and what you are really crying out for, what we're all longing to know is this, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be abandoned one day? Do I belong to something bigger than myself, or has everything been lost? Coldplay cries this out so famously on their very first record, the last song. It's a haunting song. They say, if you ever feel neglected, if you think all is lost, I'll be counting up my demons, hoping everything's not lost that that's the cry of the soul, that that's what we're all longing to know, that's what we all want to know, is that actually true? Is my suffering, is my loss actually going to take everything that matters away from me? 
And what Paul says here is that all of your deepest questions, all of your deepest desires, all of them have all been met by the grace of Jesus. You have no lack. You don't lack anything while you wait. You don't have to go and get it. You don't have to go and manufacture it. You don't have to go and achieve it or earn it. You don't lack anything because Jesus has enriched you in every way. You have Jesus and you have his grace. You have been given every gift of grace, Paul says. Therefore, you have no lack. But then Paul goes one step further. He not only says you have everything you need right now, he actually pulls that thread for, the, for them and for us, and he says, because you have everything you need right now, you will always have everything you need in all of the nows between now and when you die. In all of the present tenses of your life, you will always be provided for by God, and you, have, you will always be enriched in every way, and you will never lack anything today and for all of your days. And so because you will always have everything you need in the now, that thread will continue to be pulled. Your God will continue to provide for you everything you need then, too. That will carry you until the time until you meet Jesus face to face, and God will give you everything you need on that day, too. Not only, Corinthian church, do you have, not only Midtown church, do you have everything that you need in the present. You've been enriched in every way, and you've been given every gift of grace but the believer in Jesus also has the guarantee that their future standing, their future status will be secure at the coming of Jesus. And what will that status be? Let me read again for us verse 8. He says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you thought Paul had lost his mind already up until this point in verse 6 and 7, you're going to want to sit down for this and try to take in what he just said. Paul just said that Jesus will keep you firm. The word there is confirmed to the end. Now, when he says to the end, he's not necessarily just talking about like to the finish line. That's part of it. That word to the end is actually the word completion or completely or to the uttermost. Paul says you will be confirmed completely on the day of Christ Jesus. You will be acquitted entirely on judgment day. The other word he uses to reinforce that promise is he says, you will be blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. That word literally means you will be free from accusation. It's a Greek word taken from the judicial court system in the ancient world that actually was a term that was used when someone was completely innocent and that when there could be no charges brought against them in the court, someone maybe had dragged them to court to accuse them of something, and the judge would say, there is nothing accusable about this person. Unaccusable, unable to be charged with anything. Completely righteous and completely innocent. How is that possible for people like us? That Paul would say, on judgment day, you will have no accusation brought against you. It's because Christ has labored, Christ has worked, and Christ has achieved for us a spotless record of righteousness. And now that record belongs to us. Jesus is our righteousness. And so on judgment day, you will not pull up your own record and stand before the judge. You and I will hide behind Jesus, and the blood of Jesus will be our covering, and the judge will look at us and say, unaccusable, radiant, spotless, 
perfectly righteous is your claim. If you are in Christ, that is your verdict. No one will be able to bring a charge against you in the final courtroom scene because Christ will present you covered in his blood and the work of Christ will be your covering on judgment day. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? How can anyone bring a charge against someone who's covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus? You will be presented spotless because Christ is spotless. You will be presented without accusation because Christ's record is without accusation. And he will confirm you. He will acquit you because Jesus has already paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And God is so just that double jeopardy does not exist in his court. He cannot punish you for something that he already punished Jesus for, and he cannot unaccuse you. He cannot undeclare you righteous if he's already declared you righteous in Christ. On judgment day, you will be spotless. On judgment day, you will be radiant. And on judgment day, you will be blameless. Do you feel radiant? Do you feel innocent? What if all I did to help you answer that question was pull out the things that, that you've just thought about doing or saying this week? What if all we had to bring into the courtroom of evidence to answer that question was, tell me about your fantasy life. Tell me about the things you wish you could say to people or the things you wish you could do to people. Would you want to stand before the just judge of all the earth with that record? See, on the day of Christ Jesus, that, that day is a, is a day that all the Scripture talks about. Old Testament and New Testament. And one of the things that will happen on that day when Jesus is revealed is his judgment, his vindication, his righteous destruction of all that is evil will come to fruition. This will be a dreadful day for evildoers. This will be a dreadful day for perpetrators of injustice and for the wicked. And that may sound like archaic theology, but trust me, you and I both know we long for a day when cosmic justice is served. Writer and producer Vince Gilligan, the guy who did Better Call Saul, and he's done lots of other things in Hollywood, said several years ago in a New York Times article that atheism for me is just as hard to believe as Christianity, because if there's no cosmic justice coming, why should I be good at all? See, we long for a day when everyone will have to face justice. We long for a day when the righteous judge will come and will swallow up evil with his wrath. It's, it's, it's dark and I'm not recommending it, but I did recently watch the Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix and it's one of the darkest things I've ever seen. And so are you kidding me? I want him to have faced a just judge. I want him to have faced the judge of all the earth to give an account for what he did. But here's what's scary. If Epstein had to give an account, so will I. Romans 2, 1 Corinthians 3, just in a couple chapters from Paul, from our passage, talk about the day of, of Jesus will be the day of God's wrath. Amos chapter 5 and Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, they say that day, the day of the Lord, the day of his return, will be a day of darkness, not light. And woe to you if you think you desire it. You don't want to face the judge that day on your own. Because all that is the anti-kingdom, all that is anti-Christ, all that is evil, all that is dark, all the injustice, all the child abuse, all the deceit, all the betrayal, all the greed will be consumed in the fire of God's wrath that day. 
But Paul here says, not so for the Christian. According to Paul, because we have everything we need now and because we have everything we will need then, here's what he says to the Christian in, our, in this prayer. We eagerly await that day. Like excited for Christmas morning kind of hope. I'm thrilled about that day, the day when the judge of all the earth will come to deliver justice. Because my life has been hidden with Jesus, and his record of spotless righteousness has become my record. So that on the day of God's wrath, I will be declared unaccusable, confirmed completely, unable to be charged of any of the wrongs that I've done will be blameless on the day of Jesus. And so now, in the now, that will be our future verdict. Paul just promised us. Paul just told us. It's not the only place. There's dozens of other places in Scripture where the Christian is guaranteed what our future verdict will be. And so because that is our future promise, because that is our future judgment, we are actually able to borrow from that day, to bring that day back to the present now, we bring it here and we live out of our future verdict of righteousness, our future verdict of blameless now. And we are able to sing now with the old hymn, What though the vile accuser may roar of sins that I have done, I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Because of the work and the grace of Jesus, you are blameless to him now. That is is your reality now because it is your guarantee then. So how can we know that this declaration will happen? Look again at the comfort Paul gives in verse 8. He says, Let's look, look at these first few words. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. He will keep you firm to the end. If this COVID season has done anything, it has made us all very unsure of what keeps us. What's going to keep me healthy? What's going to keep this economy intact? What's going to keep this nation from going off the rails? How is all this going to work out? And Paul here says with utter confidence, you don't keep yourself. He keeps you. And it's because he keeps you that you will be confirmed and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. And how can I know that God will keep me? How can I know that God will confirm me and completely declare me blameless at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Opening words of verse 9, he's faithful. And this, Christian, is where confidence is found. Your confidence in the present has nothing to do with your character. Your confidence, Christian, in the present has nothing to do with how skilled or gifted or disciplined or faithful you are. Christian confidence is confidence in the character and faithfulness of God. You weren't made to keep yourself. You were made to be kept by Him. You weren't made to confirm yourself. You were made to be confirmed by Him. You weren't made to be self-confident. You were made to be confident in Him. So in the famous words of the late Eugene Peterson, Christian righteousness is paying more and more attention to God's faithfulness and less and less attention to our own. Paul here says, you don't lack anything now and you won't lack anything then and it has nothing to do with you. 
He will keep you firm to the end. And he will keep you and declare you blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. And he will do it because he's faithful. And in order for him not to do it, he would have to change his own character. Because he said he's going to keep you firm to the end. He's promised that you will be blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. And that is what Paul here is teaching them in this prayer. Christian, you don't lack anything while you wait for Jesus. And when Jesus returns, you won't lack anything then either. And so all this is true. This is what Paul says he thanks God for on behalf of the Corinthian church. This is what he says he's praying and praising God for in his prayer on behalf of the Corinthian church. And all that's true. So why does Paul tell them that he's praying that for them instead of just telling them? Why doesn't he just tell them that you'll be blameless on the day of Christ Jesus? Why does he just tell them that you have everything you need now and you don't lack anything? It's because Paul knew that we can't convince ourselves that we have all we need for now in our future. See, it's so interesting. Paul is so uninterested in his own life Paul spends his energy praying these things for them that they would know how secure they are and they would know how they have everything they need and they would know that on the future judgment day they will be blameless. Because Paul knows that if the only voice I'm listening to is my own, I will believe I am in lack. Paul knows that if the only voice in the courtroom of my head is me, I will only hear guilty. That's what 1 John says. That our own hearts condemn us. Do you know what your self-talk tells you all the time? In the courtroom, you cannot convince yourself that you will be declared blameless. You can't do it. You could stare yourself in the mirror each morning and write it on your forehead and tell yourself that these things are true and say them to yourself, but it would be like skipping a rock across the lake. And Paul wants to come and drop a boulder into the lake to have it sink to the very bottom. Because Paul knows that when a friend tells you these things, when a friend prays these things on behalf of you, when a friend intercedes for you, it sinks in. It's why we're so exhausted, because we're trying to declare our own selves blameless. It's because in between our own ears, we're trying so hard to convince ourselves that we don't lack anything. But you can't set yourself free. You're part of the reason that you're in bondage. but your community can. You can't liberate yourself, but your friends can. You can't turn off the waterfall of shame and fear, but your allies can. You need to be praying these things for your friends, and you need to be telling your friends that you're doing it, and it will help liberate them. You and I need someone outside of ourselves to pray these things, to intercede these things for us, to remind us of what is most true about us. And then here's the magic of this. And this is all over Scripture too. This this is the, the wonderful, mysterious magic of what it means to belong to God's family. Is that the more I tell you, the more I intercede for you, the more I pray these things for you to help set you free, the more I am truly concerned for your believing these things and for you being liberated in the realities of what Paul is talking about, the more I begin to believe it for me too. If it's true for you, then it gives me the courage to believe that it may, it may be, maybe, maybe it's true for me too. 
The more I call you into believing that you have no lack, and the more I call you into believing that on that day your verdict is already in, the more I begin to believe that my verdict is in too. So today, this week, here's my challenge. Would you truly intercede for your friends about all that they have in Christ? Would you pray, this, just pray these five verses of Paul for your friends, for, the, for your spouse, for your kids. Pray that they would grow in their knowledge of these things, truly. And then tell them, don't text them, call them. Go on a walk with them and tell them what you have prayed for them. Make them believing it your primary concern. And then maybe you'll begin to believe it a little bit more too. Midtown, you have no lack because of the grace of Jesus given to you. Midtown, you will be kept by your faithful God and you will be declared blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. And I thank God that it's true for you. And it's true for me too. Let's pray. Jesus, your precious sheep of Midtown uh, are so tempted to believe that we, we lack in the present. That what we have is not enough and because we are not enough that on that day we're terrified of the verdict. And so praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and has called us to himself and has declared us not just innocent, but righteous. Thank you for the security of your promises, for the confidence of your character. Give us freedom, we pray, in the present now, because you, our faithful, promise-making and promise-keeping God, will keep us to the end. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for holding us in your name. Amen. That's how I sing with the hope that Christ is holding us fast, that He will never let us go, that His promises are for us, and that He remains faithful and true. And I fear my faith fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter will prevail, he will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. from
Let's read the scripture together from Romans as we're reflecting on God's persistent and loving hold of us and that nothing changes that. Nothing can separate us um, from his grip, from his hands. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Great. Mm-hmm.
as we close uh, today, Midtown, um, what we have been invited into considering is uh, where have we anchored ourselves? Uh, where have we anchored our hearts? What is going to be the sure and steady foundation uh, that we can now move out of and build our lives from? So here are these words from the book of Hebrews. This is a little bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to go slow. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to us, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, a firm and secure foundation. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So as you hear that promise and you're reminded of the sure and steady anchor of the soul that we have in Jesus, that we have because of the work he did, going into the temple, as it were, to take on the sins, to take on the judgment that should be ours, can you now, would you now move forward in that sure and steady anchor and that sure and steady hope and be those that transform your world? So it's great to worship with you today, and we'll see you next week.